0: Hello and welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Our guest today is the president of Dreamville, Ibrahim Hamad. Welcome to the podcast, man.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate that.
0: You're a label head of one of the most iconic labels in hip hop. In my opinion, one of the few labels that still has a brand that's out there and did it in a much shorter time than most of the hip hop labels that came behind it. I got to ask you, was that part of the plan?
1: No, I mean, first of all, I appreciate you for saying that. That that means a lot. No, not at all. I think for us, the idea, because I met Cole when we were in college and uh, we started working together and it was like 2007 before he was even signed. We were already talking about Dreamville. It's just that at that time, it was just like, it felt like that was the thing to have. You get signed and then you have your crew and, and it wasn't any more than that. And then we was just repping it as he was on. But as far as like, building a label I feel like we started in 2014 for us it feels like a long time because you know the the idea has been in the air since 2007 but you're right like it hasn't taken that long compared to how long it takes other people to build a label but I know we still have a lot more to go and a lot more time to get to where we want to get to but you know how much we've been able to do so far in really the five years since we signed our deal with Interscope Really, it's been amazing, and it's really just more so the work that the artists have been able to put in and and then buying into this family that we've built and um, the ideas that they bring to life with their music and just what they do.
0: What do you think changed for you all between 2013 and 2014 in that stretch? Because I think from the fans' perspective, they see Cole put out, Born Center, I think that was like June 2013, and then Forest Hill Drive at the end of 2014. So... You know, a fair amount of time between that, but you had the Interscope deal. Was there something that changed internally of like, OK, this is where things are right now, but we got to take things to another level? Or was there some type of trigger that had set that off?
1: Yeah, honestly, the trigger was cold, is what you just said. I think the between how his first album came out and him not really getting it the way he wanted to or really getting, you know, really still playing the game in a sense. And then the second album, he was still Trying to prove himself and still trying to play the game and do what you know what he thinks is gonna make him successful what he thinks people want from him, and really, it was after Born Center where he was like, "I'm done with this shit like I'm done playing everybody's game and I'm just gonna do things my way and and I'm gonna bet on myself and whether we win or lose, we're gonna do it bet on ourselves and doing it the way that you know I could feel like me, so that started with Cole, and you know once someone that's at the top. That you know, the leader of the movement starts feeling like that. It's easy for everyone else to buy into it. And he really took it on. You know, he went all the way with it. That's why 4 sales Drive was the success that it was, because he really was like, I'm just going to do this how I want to do it. I'm not going to put no single out before. I'm going to do the rollout how I want to do it and win or lose. I'm just going to bet on myself. And that was the turnaround. So implementing that into his career and into what we were doing and that also force those drive going into force those drives when I took over as management. So implementing that, all those things, it was easy to to implement that into how we want to see our company and our label run. You know, that was a big turning point for Cole, which was clear for us as a company. Like, OK, this is how we should be, you know, moving This is how we should believe in ourselves. And we should only do things that excite us and we should only do things that we're passionate about. We should only sign artists that we really love and not based on what their numbers look like or if they have a hit in the pipeline. It just should be just what we love and what we want to work on. So that really started with, I wanna say like around December twenty thirteen, when we were on a tour in Europe on a born senator, and he had his mindset like, I have an album. It's gonna be called Twenty Fourteen, Four Sale Drive. I haven't made the album yet, but I'm basing it around this. And that was the most sure I had ever seen him. And from that point it just kind of like turn into a feeling of just believing in ourselves and betting ourselves and not feeling like we need to play the game.
0: Was there any pushback that Cole had got at any point when he made that decision? Because in hindsight, it makes 100% sense, right? It was a turning point for his career and set the tone for the label you have now. But I could imagine at the moment, there may have been some hesitation, like, really? Like, Born Center was still successful. You really about to do this, Cole?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I remember Going into the label, you know, I keep names out, but I was at the label (laughs) and I was like, I was like, yo, so you know, this is the album. You know, we're gonna announce it three weeks before the album comes out, and then we're gonna start our promo. We got a couple of ideas where we wanna do this, do that. We wanna do a listening at his old house 2014 four cell drive. We wanna do this, but we're not gonna drop any music beforehand. We just gonna promote the album and let our fans because what Cole started feeling is like, yo, my fans. In a sense, he started feeling like I got to stop worrying about how to reach people outside of my core and just worry about taking care of my core. And then if I do my job, then they'll be so loud. They'll be so excited about what I gave them that they'll be my promotion. And they'll be the ones that want to tell people, all you know is your fans. You can't figure out what's out there. Those imaginary fans that people are trying to win, you don't know who they are. You know your fans. So Cole started really focusing on that. You know, when I told the label... And I was like, yeah, we're not going to drop any singles. We're just going to promote the album and just come with the album. And I remember, you know, someone that I have so much respect for, you know, great friend in the game who's like, really? Like, y'all think y'all can just do that? Like, y'all thinking like y'all Beyonce or something? I don't know if that's going to work. <laughs> and I was just like, well, if it work or not, like, that's just what we're doing right now. Like, that's what we are. And I remember because later that day in the office, the same person grabbed me and was like, Y'all respect that. I respect how you stood tall on like the fact that that's what y'all wanted to do. That remind me of like us coming up and that's dope. It, like if you believe and if you feel like that's the best way for y'all to put y'all mind I'm with it, like uh, let's do it. You know, it was like little pushback like that. But for the most part, it was nothing you could tell Cole at that point. And like I said, he was controlling it. He's the head of the snake. So once he said like, man, that's what I'm doing. And anybody that knows knows is once he set his mind to something, it's going to happen. So it's like once he set his mind to it, I knew that there was no stopping it. There was no stopping his idea, or you know, making him change all that. So it kind of just went. We knew what we had, and we knew what we was gonna do.
0: Was there any follow up with that person after Fors Hills driver since Dreamville has expanded? That they've come up to be like, hey, you know, I guess y'all were right.
1: Nah, because I don't think that person would even remember that they said that. Like it wasn't like that important to them. You know what I mean? Like, oh, okay. But no, I still have a great relationship with that person. Whenever we see them, but. It's labels, like the thing with labels, and I'm sure I had moments where I was wrong, where sometimes you really don't know as a label. Sometimes as a manager, you don't know. Nobody knows better than the artist. You know, they're the ones that's most tapped in with their audience. They're the ones that talk to their audience all the time, whether it's through social, whether it's through their music. So they know. And sometimes what I learned through all those experiences, like I can give all my input and let let the artist know what I think is right or wrong. But at the end of the day, it's their decision because, you know, seven times out of ten, eight times out of ten, I'll say they they know better than I do. Or, you know, in certain situations, because they just they're dealing with it on a day-to-day basis with the fan base. So I think it was just sometimes the best way to do things is stepping back and letting someone, you know, do what they do. And I think that was a case of that, and it worked out.
0: Is that hard for you as a manager? I mean, I would imagine that you want to be able to empower and you want to be able to accept when you may not have the insight that the artist does. But deep down, you're probably like, okay, I do have some idea of how things might go. I could provide a little advice here. Is that difficult?
1: As a manager? No, because I only manage Cole. So it's like the way me and Cole work is different. Like it's never your decision, my decision. Of course, it's Cole's career when, you know, if he's doing something, he's like, I want to do this. We're going to move on it. But most of the time it's conversations and we go back and forth and we come up with the best decision that we, you know, we feel makes sense. And sometimes it's like, ah, I didn't see why you said that. And actually you are right, Cole. That is the way. Or sometimes he might feel that way about something I said. As someone who have artists signed to the label, it's a little different because you've been through a lot of things that they went through. Not me personally, but I've secondhand been through it watching Cole go through it. And I've seen the ups and downs that Coles has to go through. So sometimes you want to help them be like, yo, I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. Or, yo, this is not real. Like you're putting too much weight on this. But sometimes the artists have to go through it themselves to experience that and then learn from it. So that is tough to see an artist like have to bump their head sometimes. Or sometimes have an artist be like, nah, I know what I'm doing. And then being right. And then it's on me to learn from that. And I appreciate those moments where, where an artist is like, Nah, I don't agree with that. And then I have to learn from that. So it goes both ways. But yes, there's a lot more times where you're like, Oh, I've kind of seen this before, man. I'm just trying to give you a heads up. Right, right. You know, you, you have to respect that an artist is always, they're going to do it their way a lot of times. And you just have to be there to give them the information needed. And then, you know, let things fall into place.
0: Right. I feel like part of that turning point for Cole and you and Cole specifically was the Dollar in the Dream Tour, because that is happening around that same time that the Interscope deal happened and the planning for Forest Hills Drive and some of those conversations you had referenced earlier at least from the fans perspective, it does seem like that didn't just set the tone for Cole's career, but also set the tone for Dreamville as a brand and what its mantra was. And I think that carries through with some of the things you've been mentioning about how you want to empower artists to know what's best for them.
1: Yeah. I think with that was on Cole's first mixtape to come up, he had a freestyle and it was called dollar in the dream. And on the warmup, he had a song called Donna dream too. And then on his first album, the intro was "Dollar Dream 3. And it was like, that was just his thing. And it was just a state of mind that we always lived with. which is like, we don't got much, but, you know, we have this dream and we believe in it. So we're going to go get it. And then when we're in college and we made the come up and we pressed up a couple, we used to go down to North Carolina A&T because all his homeboys went to school there. You know, I was from New York, so I was going up there with him. And we were selling a mixtape on the yard, like just trying to get people, a, you know, he was signed to nothing and we were selling the mixtape for a dollar. And people was like, why would y'all do that? Like, cause the whole thing was like, yo, if we give it to you for free, you just gonna toss it. Right. If we charge you five dollars, you're not gonna buy it because you don't know if the product is good. If we charge you a dollar, you at least gonna listen to one song. And once you listen to one song, we think we good, we think we got you. And that was kind of like it just added to the whole dollar and dream thing. And I think when the album was coming out, it was really when Born Center was coming out, Dollar and Dream was birthed from really around the first album. We did a dollar in the dream. It was just a one-time show because Jay Brown suggested it. You know what I mean? Because Jay Brown from Rock Nation suggested it because we were talking about that was a big part of his brain. He's like, well, why don't you just do a show for a dollar? We was like, oh, shit, like, that's a good-ass idea. So we did that, and that was like the first one. like I think it was like Roseland Ball. It was around the first album. The tour was a whole different thing. We was like, all right, how can we take this to the next level? And what that was was Born Center was coming out. And we just wanted to Build energy Going into the album That's all it was It was like A lot of the moves That we were making In the beginning Of Cold Career Were out of desperation Out of hunger Out of like The feel to like Get people excited And you know Making sure that people Are excited for this product That's coming So Dollar and Dream Tour Was us just trying To figure out like ah, How do we get the energy at a fever pitch before this album comes out, especially since Cole had moved his album up to come out. Same time as Kanye. We knew it was even more.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeezy and Born Sinner was head to head. Yeah. So we knew it was
1: even more pressure for us to show out. So that's how it came about. And really what it comes from is that's one thing that Cole always had with his brand is like, he's aware of not only his fans, but he always tries to like, make things available to everyone. You know what I mean? Like even when when we go on tour, we try to keep our ticket prices as low as we can. When we went to like South Africa for the first time, our ticket price was low and, they, and it worked out because a lot of people can't afford these things. So Dollar in the Dream was a way of like, you might not be able to see your favorite artist in concert because sometimes $80, $100, but here's a chance, a dollar. And because I'm only charging y'all a dollar, I can do whatever songs I want. I don't got to come out here and do the hits. I can just do whatever, like, you know what I mean? Like I could do mixtape cuts. And the first year was funny because we had the whole plan of like, we're going to announce the cities, but we won't announce the location till like 2, 3 p.m. the day of, because, you know, it's only a dollar, so people are going to swarm. Right. I remember the night before calling Cole. like, I was nervous because we never did this. So I'm like, damn, is this going to work? Are we going to announce the day of? And like 30 people going to show up? Like, are we going to look crazy? So like the night before, I was like, yo, man, you should just fuck, you should just announce it right now. He's like, sure. It was like three in the morning when we announced it. And that was a big mistake.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Started camping out, right?
1: Oh my, they were there since five in the morning.
0: Oh my God.
1: And it was a venue that held 300, like 50, people, something like that. So then Cole ended up doing two shows that night out of nowhere. He was like, I'm gonna do another one. And people was outside. Like I remember it was all outside the gate and Cole stood up on like a table talking over the gate, like, telling everybody, all right, got to calm down. Like, we don't want to get shut down. Like, he was, like, really, like, talking to the people. Like, it was mad funny to me. And then my boy Mike Shaw was, like, holding the gate, like, making sure nobody come through. It was wild. Like, we were, we really didn't know what we were doing, but it was the best experience ever. Like, and you could see it in the fans' faces. And then as it grew, it became something that was, like, a damn near, like, a family reunion for our fans. And I remember walking out in the New York one and seeing our fans online and they're singing cold songs together. Like it was just beautiful. And it was just like, you're right. It became a staple not only for cold, but for what our label stands for, which is giving these opportunities and being innovative and like just getting fans excited and bringing fans together. So that was a special moment.
0: Yeah. One of the powerful things about that is you're able to attract the fans And build their relationships and the people that actually got in the door. But then you're also able to do it as well from the people that waited in line or camped out but couldn't get in. But they still were able to connect in some way with the other people that were crazy fans. And then because it was online, even the people that didn't get in, they still remember like, oh, yeah, Cole did this. This is what fan building means to him. So even though he wasn't there, it touches them in a way. That's the kind of stuff you can't put a dollar on that. You can't pun intended and everything, but you can't like quantify how important that is. And, you know, it makes a tremendous difference.
1: No, for sure. I think for us, we seen that, like, you know, we lost money doing those down and dream shows. And and we, we had issues with the cities and New York city trying to shut us down and find us and all those things. But what came from those shows, it's like a lifetime of fans that really ride for you. Cause they remember those times where, you showed up to the city for a dollar and gave them a whole show and then did another one and bought out Kendrick Lamar for a dollar, bought out Drake for a dollar, bought out Wale for a dollar, Trey Songs, Meek Mill. All these people came out of shows, you know what I mean, that people paid a dollar for. So I think people remember that and we remember that, you know, and it's not like we were doing it just to like. Come up with this. We yeah, we were doing it to build excitement, but we were enjoying these moments. We were out there. I remember driving off from the New York show. I went early, talked to the venue. There's a bunch of people online. They gave out wristbands, and they're like, anybody else that doesn't have a wristband can't get in. I get in the car service, and I'm driving off, and I look and like the driver's like side mirror, and it's like for like three blocks. There's a dude running behind the car, chasing me down. Wow. So I tell the driver to stop, and he's just like, yo. I didn't get in on the first one. I didn't get on the second Dollar in the Dream. Like, I'm getting in this one. Like, you're going to see me in there, like. And I was like, yo, when I come back, if I see you, I'm going to grab you. Like, for sure, because you're your dedication. I didn't see him when I came back. I felt bad. I was like, damn, I, like, I wish I would have grabbed him. After that, I started taking fans' names and sending them in right away. But I was like, five, seven songs into the show. I look in the front row, and he's looking right at me, pointing at himself. Like I told you, I'm gonna get in. I was like, How did you get in? Like, how did you make it in here? Like, there was no more tickets. Moments like that will stick out forever. You know, there's fans that been to everyone. You know, there's fans that that we got to make sure get in because it's like, man, you've been to everyone. You've always supported. So it's, it's it's just a beautiful community thing, really. And what makes it dope is our fans never caused any problems. You know, like cops was there acting like. Assholes and our fans just like being respectful. Like, all right, we're not gonna start no shit. They wasn't fighting each other, you know. Like everybody was respectful. Cause all it takes is one bad moment to happen for cities to be like, yo, this is done. You know what I mean?
0: Right. And then it casts a bad cloud on everything. Exactly. And that's the power of a brand, man. The fact that fans feel that way, and the fact that fans feel that way about coal and everything. And from a branding perspective, I noticed that. Y'all dropped the Dreamville records. Now it's just Dreamville. And you mentioned expanding the brand into different areas. I think you've mentioned sports in the past. What are some of the things you're thinking about?
1: Oh, man, I think it's just that we realize that our brand, we're like, we know who we are. You know what I mean? Like we know who we are and we know what we stand for. We know what we bring to the table. So when we decide to get involved in something else, we're going to put our fingertips on that, you know, we're not just going to get into a different field and be like, oh, let's just do this. It's like, nah, I still got to feel like Dreamville. So even like it started with films, you know, like we did the HBO documentary then we did another HBO documentary. Then we uh, co-executive produced a documentary on Omaha called Omaha. Then, you know, now we're working on a couple more things and that became a passion. And, you know, we always talk about scripts and writing things. And we always have ideas like those are a passion because they come from our voice. So it was film. Then, you know, like what we did with Puma and doing like the whole creative campaign. And, and that's another passion is being able to lend our ideas to other brands and doing it our way. Like what we did with the story, with the short film we did for them. Obviously the festival festival was something we always wanted to do. It took a little while, but once we got it done, we did it our way. We did it with a lineup of people that we enjoy a lineup of artists that we listen to that we like. And that's kind of what we always want to do. So, you know, sports is something I want to get into, but I've been saying that for a while, but it's also like, I'm not going to rush into it because I have other things that got to be put in place before you can get there. And I want to make sure I know what I'm doing when I get there or, you know, what that Cole knows what he's doing when he get there. Of course we know the game and we know people and we have those relations, but it's more than just that. And it's the same with film. It takes a little long because you want to know what you're doing in any field. You wanna know what you're doing. You don't want to look like an idiot. For us, it's just about making sure whatever we do, it stays true to who we are, it stays true to the brand, which at the end of the day, it's got to be driven off of passion and not off of dollar signs. If it's driven off of passion and it's done right, like the money's going to come. But if it's driven off of money, then, you know, I think your brand becomes at risk. And that's the one thing we can not do.
0: Right. I would imagine that you must have a pretty strong amount of inbound requests for people that want to partner with dreamville partner with Cole on this project and with everyone launching a streaming service or some other type of digital content distribution you can probably be pretty selective with what you choose and not choose to do
1: for sure i mean specifically for Cole. well for Cole, it's easier because he just almost says no to everything so (laughs) he kind of he kind of makes everybody's job easy i guess but it's important for us because we spent the last couple of years, making sure we separate the Dreamville brand from the J. Cole brand so they can live in two different places. For so long, Dreamville was just J. Cole and synonymous with just J. Cole.
0: Now, I could imagine that's difficult.
1: It is super difficult because Dreamville is always going to be J. Cole. It's always going to be a part of who he is because that's his creation. But it was hard to establish the branding outside of just Cole, but we have an incredible team. Like me and Cole have a partner, Adam Rodney, who's like our creative director, like Derek Oakley, MK, our A&R Matt that you just heard that was saying it up. You know what I mean? Like Maddie, Felton, Scott, David, all these people were like, we work around the clock to like the last year. The whole last year was like going into it. It was like, yo, we're going to wave the Dreamville flag. Like we got to establish Dreamville this year. That's why the first video you seen of the year was middle child there was literally a flag a dreamville flag on the back of the car waving like that was all part of the idea of waving the dreamville flag you know we started with the sessions and what really allows us to build the dreamville brand to be more than just Cole is the artist you know what i mean once boz started catching steam then erv gang's catching steam ari's got a wave. Jig got a wave. You know what I mean? Kaz and Omen and Lute starting to bring their music out and it's like, okay, once you start doing that, now you got people that are J.I.D. fans that they didn't hear J.I.D. because of Dreamville. They just found them on the internet and they're not necessarily Dreamville fans. You got Ari Lennox fans that are not necessarily Dreamville fans. That's when you can establish the brand past cold when it's other people bringing things to the table and then after that, from there, we started taking on establishing a brand the name itself outside of Cole. So we started doing events and we was doing parties at the BT Award uh, weekend, a house party or parties during Grammy weekend. You know, shout out to MK and Maddie and Derek and them that facilitate all that. Like those things started bringing recognition to the Dreamville brand beyond Cole because Cole was in there. And I don't think people expected Cole to be there. I don't even think people thought Cole was in the state, like let alone going to be at the party. But people still showed up and people were still talking about it. And those little things, they add up. You know, it's always an ongoing process, but they add up. Then the opportunities that come for Dreamville are different than opportunities that come for Cole. So then when Cole turns down an opportunity, it's not the end of the world for Dreamville because another opportunity might come that's specific to Dreamville. So it took a while to get to that point. But I think that's important because if we were just stuck as a brand that was just stuck to Cole, we wouldn't get some of the opportunities that we have.
0: Are there any hip hop labels in the past that you think did a really good job of that, being able to separate that founder artist away from the brand?
1: I think a lot of them did. I mean, think of Rockefeller. You're always going to think Jay-Z when you think Rockefeller, but Rockefeller stood on its own. You know what I mean? Like like that chain was powerful. People wanted that chain. And it wasn't just because of Jay. It was just what Rockefeller became.
0: And there was an image there. And I would almost say that the brand of Rockefeller, not that obviously Jay was like a tough and he had that street rap image, but I think Rockefeller almost had a stronger street brand than Jay-Z did himself.
1: Yeah, I think it became a lifestyle. Rockefeller became a lifestyle. And I think that was interesting to people. I think even Bad Boy, you know, yeah, you always think of Diddy, but he did a good job of like biggest. Arguably one of the greatest rappers of all time. Once you introduce things that are almost as big or just as big or stand right next to you, you allow your brand to expand past you. And I think a lot of people did that. I think cash money, no limit. Like all of the ones that stood the test of time that you remember, like the brand started being big enough where the head Han show didn't have to necessarily carry it. You know what I mean? Like we can put up a Dreamville show with no call right now. And sell a lot of tickets and people to show up because our artists are touring artists that sell a lot of tickets. So, you know, there's a lot of labels that we've seen do it and you draw inspiration from all of them, obviously.
0: Right. Let's talk about the music festival, Dreamville Fest. You mentioned it earlier. I feel like you've got a bad luck hand with that because the first time you had it, was it hurricane Florence came through y'all had to postpone. But then now for the second time, we have this COVID virus, and I think y'all were planning to do it this spring, right? But obviously, that can't happen anymore.
1: Yeah, we were doing it Saturday, April 4th.
0: Oh, wow. It was about to be this weekend.
1: Yeah. So, we was going to hit 50,000 tickets this year. Oh, man. We had an incredible lineup ready. We was about to announce a couple of weeks before we really was getting ready to announce the lineup, because the tickets were already on sale. MK that works with us was like, hey, she texts me and Adam, because me and Adam really like, run point on a festival with Scoremore, who's our partner and she was like hey should we be worrying about the coronavirus and blah 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 and i kind of almost was like nah we'll be all right like i ain't tripping like i ain't think it's gonna shut you know this is like probably like a month before everything really started going crazy over here so i was like nah we should be good like i think we'll be all right but i'll check in so you know i hit sasha to be like yo you know how we looking? Like, and he was kind of like, I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm a little worried, but I think we'll be all right. You know, Sasha runs score more and he's done a bunch of festivals and everything. That's my guy. And then slowly, but you started hearing like, oh, blah, 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 might cancel. And that's when I started worrying. Then I was like, you know, the good thing is, I don't even know if I'm supposed to be putting this out there, but I don't know how it works. But, you know, maybe Sasha will tell me later. But, you know, like when Hurricane Florence happens, we have insurance for those things. You know what I mean? We have insurance that covers acts of God that are, you know, weather related. And then that covers us. So when we have to cancel the day of, yeah, we lose some money, but insurance kind of picking up a lot of the costs that might've hit us. Right. So when this happens, I'm like, do we have insurance on this? And he's like, insurance is not insuring any festival on the coronavirus. Damn. So then the decision became, do you postpone or cancel early enough where you don't take a big hit on your vendors? and the money that you were going to spend, or do you wait last minute to try to play it out? But if you wait last minute, then a lot of those costs you have to cover. Because, you know, with your vendors and staging and all of that, you're at a place where, you know, once you sign a contract, depending on a certain timeline, you got to cover the cost. So we had to make a decision, not knowing it was going to get as crazy as it did, but we made a decision just early enough to be like, look, we got lucky because we found a date to postpone it to. And, you know, we're hoping the date, We'll be fine at this point. We don't know anything. Like, no one knows anything at this point, but... What's the date? August 29th. Okay. But it was an easy decision because we didn't want to put anybody at risk. We didn't want to put anybody in harm's way. You know, it was a super easy decision. But yeah, we call it the most resilient festival in the
0: game.
1: (laughs) you know, it's always something... And, you know, I, I know we'll bounce back even stronger than before. The lineup, everybody that we had in place is still available... But the good thing is a couple of people that I really wanted that weren't available, I could go back after them now and be like, hey, what's up? What you doing? Like, so we'll see how that works out. That's what I'm working on now. Just in general, man, that festival, ironically, was birthed from Dollar and a Dream. It was birthed from the idea of Dollar and a Dream. And we wanted to take Dollar and a Dream to a bigger level. And we thought about how do we do Dollar in the Dream festival? And we was like, okay, this is impossible because you'll lose so many millions trying to do a Dollar in the Dream festival.
0: Like you're charging everybody a dollar?
1: Yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. <laughs> like our ideas were so ridiculous. But from their birth into what Dreamville Fest is, it's one of the best things we've ever done as a company. Like last year, it was 40,000 people there. People had so much fun. The performances were incredible. Like that was like a real proud moment. For not just me, but I think for our whole company.
0: Yeah, no, it was dope. And I think it was good that you had the live stream through Tidal as well, so that those that couldn't go got to see it. And you also did it in North Carolina, which makes sense with where Cole's from and everything. But I imagine that there's definitely some pros and cons of having a festival there. Pros is that. From a location perspective, you're not necessarily competing with the radius of where other major festivals are and artists that are in any clauses. But I wonder either from a cultural and government perspective of an area that isn't used to having an event like that, what that may have been like.
1: It was a bit of a challenge because North Carolina is very, I want to say by the book. I don't know how what you call it, but they, you know,
0: they,
1: it's not easy to get things necessarily... Done. It goes through a lot of different people that have to approve it and city members and mayors and everything. And also, you know, we're coming in and this is a rapper and his team and want to put on an event for 40,000 people. So you can imagine, you know, what they would be thinking. Like they're thinking about all the dangers of that and everything. So it took years of getting permits and convincing and parking permits that I had no idea about. You know, more like Sasha and, and Gina and them, they were sending. Decks that were 50 pages just about parking and parking permits and parking and shuttle. 50 pages. And I'm like, I'm not reading these 50 pages. Y'all got to give me the cliff notes or or something. (laughs) Because I'm not going through 50 pages about parking. But that's how deep these things go. You know, like this is definitely not something we could have just done as Dreamville just showed up and did the whole thing. Yeah, we had, you know, the creativity and the artists that we want, but like you need someone that really knows what they're doing you know, to bring this to life. And I think, you know, having score more, who's a Texas based company, who's done a lot of festivals there, but they had whoever needed to be there at the time. They had their team flying in and out of Raleigh, me and the mayor. We had an event in in Raleigh where we met the mayor and Cole met the mayor and and like different city officials. So you had to do these things because they also protect their citizens and they also protect their city and they don't want a, a bad look on them. So, and it was a brand new park that had never been used. It used to be, I think, uh, like a hospital and it was torn down. You know, now it's like a beautiful park. So, you know, there was a lot of second guessing like, hey, you know, we want to make sure this runs right. And after the first year, of course, they were like, this was incredible. The effect they had on the economy was insane because 55 percent of the people that came were from out of the state, let alone from outside of Raleigh. You know what I mean? People were flying in from different countries. Hotels. I remember walking downtown and and I go to Raleigh a lot, you know what I mean? Because I work out of there a lot. But I remember seeing hotels all booked, restaurants. And, you know, once you do it right, the city will appreciate it and they want more of it.
0: Did any part of this make you feel a little bit of sympathy for the festivals that have their challenges or don't get off the ground?
1: A hundred percent.
0: I'm thinking about last year with Woodstock. Like a lot of people were like, what's going on? How do they not get their shit together? But this is tough. And sometimes things can go left.
1: It's insane. Like Sasha always makes fun of me because now he's like, yeah, Eve, now you're a festival book. And now you know how it feels because I'm on the phone with people trying to call people like, yo, I need you. What's up? And I realize all the things you go through, like people will be like, where's the lineup? And they don't know how hard it is just to secure a lineup. Some of those festivals have like full on staff that are just dedicated to their festival all year round. There's probably I don't know how many people dedicated to like a Lollapalooza all year round. And, and we're trying to make it happen. And then people are booked, people are this, people are too much. And then when we were about to cancel this year, like I was hurt. I don't know how we bounce back from this. Like in the moment, it was just a pain of like, is this the end of the festival? But it was like, you know, then you talk to people around you like, bro, shut up. Like, we're going to come back, you know, but you realize how much work was put in for months and months and months. And then something out of your control just takes it away. So yeah, it gave me a whole new understanding for booking festivals, producing festivals, picking staging. You know, we was like picking different activations and sponsors trying to build events around the whole weekend and dealing with sponsors for that. And, you know, it was just like, you realize that's a full-time job in its own. You know, we're we're trying to juggle it while putting out music and putting out merch and all these things, but there's people that are dedicated all year to that and I see why. And yeah, it gave me a whole new, found respect for people that, you know, not only have festivals, but, you know, people that want to aspire to have their own festivals and I look at what Tyler did was starting, his festival started, if I'm not mistaken, at the, what, what was that venue? in?
0: Um, was it the Dodger Stadium?
1: No, it started, though, at that venue in LA Live.
0: Oh, the one like near the Staples Center?
1: Yeah, the, shout out my man Don, though. That's Dom, that's their venue. Because I don't know why I wanted to say the Roxy, but anyway, it's not the Roxy. So it started there, which is like, what, 2,300 cap? So it started with 2,300 people, and now... It's fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 people, whatever it is, two nights. So it's like the vision to see that through, you know, I have, it's just different, man. It's, it's impressive, and, and I love to see it.
0: It's funny you mentioned the Tyler, the Creator Festival, because, of course, that festival is famous last year for the Tyler fans, Boo and Cole, because they thought that Frank Ocean was going to come on stage. What do you mean Boo and Drake? Oh, yeah, Boo and Drake. That's what I meant to say. But the reason I've said J. Cole, though, is because... Honestly, it made me think of that's the type of thing that I think people would assume J. Cole fans could potentially do. Not to Drake, but just considering how proud and live the fan base is. And that's one of the things that you see with fan bases like that.
1: No, nah, for sure. I think the difference is any diehard group of fans would kind of like ride for their guy and they want it their way. I think the difference is Cole fans are a little more a little nicer. I think Tyler fans are a little more on the the rebellious side. So I think it's a little funny to do that. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's Drake. It's the fucking biggest artist in the world. I don't think... I think, yeah, of course, any artist in that moment's like, damn, y'all really booing me, but I'm pretty sure you don't lose sleep at night over it. And you know, I wasn't there, but I'm 99% sure there was way, way, way more people enjoying that set. But the little group of people that were loud and booing always going to stand out. You know what I mean? That's just how the world works. So, yeah, you know, it happens.
0: And they're going to stand in front where they're in eyesight and can be caught on the mobile, uh, what do you call it, the Instagram cliff and everything. We're talking about Drake and it makes you think of this question that everyone has been thinking, at least people that are following hip hop. They're looking at Drake, Cole, and Kendrick as the three artists on top right now. And as we're entering this next decade, everyone's wondering, okay, who are the ones that are gonna be able to make that extra stretch? Like what is it gonna look like five years? Are these still gonna be the three on top? What's it gonna look like in twenty thirty? Now, I know you're definitely, of course, and should be probably a little biased towards Cole, but I'm curious, what's your take on that? How do you think that it'll play out between these three?
1: I think that it depends on Who really wants to be there in 5, 10 years, 20 years? You know what I mean? I don't think Cole wants to be doing this for 5, 10, 20 years. Like, maybe still making music, but I don't know where his headspace is on how long he wants to make albums. You know what I mean? Like, how long he wants to play the game of competing. I don't know what Kendrick is thinking. I can only, you know, speak for how much they want it. I think they're all so talented and so incredible and such students of the game that... As long as the hunger's there, they can keep being on top. But I don't think it's just gonna be them three for another fifteen, ten, five, whatever years. You can say Travis is up there, you know, like he's put up the numbers, he's put up the sales, but it's different. It's different kind of music. But you can say he's up there, you know what I mean? You could say Uzi's on his way. I don't know, like, you know, like
0: his album did pretty good.
1: Yeah, what are you gauging on? Are we gauging on numbers? Are we gauging it on? the respect as a rapper. You could say, you know, J.I.D.'s on his way. You could say a lot of people on their way. At the end of the day, it depends what you're gauging it on. I think one thing about all three of them, they know their brand, and I think they know how to utilize their platform and their brand to keep elevating. You know, you can look at Cole, and the last two years of his career were arguably the biggest years of his career. You know what I mean? Like, Middle Child is five-time platinum. Then he had that feature run. You know, He had obviously K.O.D. He had Revenge of the Dreamers. He had this huge run of two years as KOD without having to put out his own album. Where, you know, Kendrick's last album was obviously his biggest album. You know what I mean? Drake's last album broke all types of records. So they're still elevating as far as their artistry and the numbers. So I don't know if I could put a timeline on it. All I can say is it depends on who really wants it that long. Because shit could get tiring. Like, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm pretty sure that some days maybe... Drake wakes up or Kendrick wakes up or Cole wakes up and they're like, man, do I really want to keep running this race? You know, I don't know. I'm I'm just assuming. But, you know, to me, I think it's just going to depend on who really wants to keep doing this for another 10 years, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Drake seems like the one that wants it the most, at least from what he's been showing from his music. I don't know how he may really feel about it. But I do feel like Cole is the one, if he chose to, has the fan base and has the connection. So if he ever wanted to do the Jay-Z, you know, I'm still going to tour and put out music well into my 50s. He knows he would have the audience.
1: Yeah, but I think Drake has that audience, too. Honestly, I think Kendrick has that audience because you don't get there without that type of audience. No, that's true. I think the difference is Drake is so massive. You know, he has outside just pop audience, too that sometimes I think people confuse. He's like this pop star. I mean, he is a pop star, but really he has those fans that's been there since so far gone, since his earlier mixtapes was a room for improvement in those things.
0: Comeback season.
1: Comeback season. And I know those fans cause I know Drake and those guys and we've done tours with them. And I've seen those same fans that have grown into people that damn near in business with him, you know, like, and I've seen those same fans be around and there at the shows and, they always support. So those fans are there. Obviously Cole has that and they're loud and, you know, they're like, almost like a cult like following and so does Kendrick and I think you don't get to where they at without having that. And, you know, I went to Travis's tour and I seen that and I was like, oh, this is different. Like these kids, I might not never necessarily ever see in my life or interact with on a daily <laughs> basis but they're here. They're going crazy. They're raging and he knows his brand and he targets that. So I don't think you get there Without having that, I think it all comes down to the artist and what they want and how hungry they are to keep competing. Because, you know, like you can look at it like Andre 3000, like his last album was like his biggest thing. And every time you hear a verse, he's still one of the greatest to rap, you know, even till today when you hear a verse, you're like, holy shit. But does he want to be in the race? Does he want to be constantly making out? I don't know. I don't know the man, but I'm assuming it takes a lot. I'll say that.
0: Yeah. No, it'll be fun for the fans either way. And I think the fact that they all can control their destiny says a lot. Before we let you go, one more question. You obviously have... A vision for where you want to build things. And we've talked about other labels and other brands in hip hop that have done similar things. But in many ways, you're also going to chartered territory that others necessarily haven't been. Are there people that you go to or hit up for advice or people that your go to is like, hey, I'm thinking through this? Because I guess that could be interesting because you're also doing something that hasn't necessarily been done in the same way, but there are some models of those that have done it well.
1: Yeah, for sure. I do talk to a lot of people in the music industry that I feel are doing more than just music, that are building these brands, you know what I mean? Like, whether it's obviously the people through Dreamville that I always talk to, or whether it's my man Barry and Zeke from since the 80s and Key, or, you know, Henny at AQT, like, that's my guy. Like, we have calls where we just pick each other's brain, like LVRN, those dudes are really dope. But, you know, I also talk to people outside of music. Like, sometimes i have conversations with Maverick you know what I mean like Maverick Carter or Rich Paul like those people are doing that I don't get talked to them too often but when I do I, I try to pick their brain or you know even Anthony Saleh we was just talking the other day who manages Future and Nas like but he's also doing a lot of things outside of just music and obviously the person I probably talk to the most is Future The Prince who's Drake's manager but he does so many things outside of music and I lean on him a lot for advice and I also talk to Dave Free a lot because he gives me uh, opinions or, or input from a whole different place. So I like to lean on my peers that do different things. And sometimes they lean on me for things, you know, they ask me things that maybe they see that we bring to the table that they can implement in their ways. So to me, I like to talk to my peers a lot because I feel like specifically with like Future and Dave Free and then even like, you know, the guys from like since the 80s and LVRN and EQT, like those people that I really fuck with, even talking to them, I feel like those businesses were being built in a different time where you're kind of like a uh, multi functional business. You know what I mean? Like you're doing a lot of things at the same time and you're trying to figure it out on the go. And, you know, you're just always coming up with new innovative ways. So I like to lean on that more so than people that have done it because I feel like even though I love leaning on people that have done it, The people that have done it have done it in a way where I don't know if it necessarily works in the same way now. You know what I mean?
0: Right. This is a different game now.
1: It's a different game. Exactly. So I feel like there's definitely 100% things you can take from things that have been done before. And I definitely do that and have those conversations with these people. You know, I have a lot of conversations with Jay Brown, like just asking him things, you know, when I get to see him. But for the most part, I like leaning on my peers because we're in the same situation and we all offer different things. And we all have to figure it out on the go.
0: No, that's dope. Great to hear it. And I agree. I think the peers thing is smart. And even when I think about my own business with Trapital and how I manage things, it's the peers that are in similar boats that I'm learning the most from. Ebe, it was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Is there anything that you want to plug or let the audience know about before we let you go?
1: I don't know if I got much to plug. I mean, Dreamville Fest, August 29th, you know, we got new music coming. Obviously, that's always Important to us, you know, Kaz about to drop some new music. Spillage Village album is coming. That's, you know, Jid, Irv Gang, Mariba, Black, you know, JB, Jordan Bryan. That's not my company, that's since the eighties, but we're working with them on that. Those are my guys. So, you know, just look out for the music and yeah, Dreamville Fest, that's definitely happening. Unless COVID-19 doesn't want us to have it.
0: Let's hope another act of God doesn't come its way. Dreamville's already had its fair share. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
1: No, thanks for having me. man. Take care.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Traffalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, Go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.